we are making our way right through the Gospel of Mark, and as uh, we announced at the beginning, and we've, we've pretty much stuck with this, uh, according to uh, a certain edition of the Greek New Testament, we just follow the paragraph divisions. So we, we go paragraph by paragraph, and uh, the paragraph that we come up to today is, is kind of short, and, there, and you, could, you could have argued that maybe you should include the one after it automatically, because this paragraph ends with a, a, a colon, and then the whole parable shoots from it. But, leaning into an, a legalistic urge, no, uh, we have stuck. Uh, we have stuck with our paragraph-by-paragraph program And so just be verses uh, 1 and 2 this morning of uh, Mark chapter 4. So let's stand together and we'll read 1 and 2 and then remain standing for prayer. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, or you could say, you could, you could translate that, and he was speaking to them while teaching, or he was speaking to them by means of his teaching. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as John mentioned, this uh, was a week of politics in our nation, uh, both with an election and a a holiday that makes us think of uh, national things and international things, men and women who served this country all around the world, and some of them at great personal cost. Uh, And then an election week eventually shakes out. We find out which party is in charge of which offices in the various states, But ultimately, you remind us that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in a very real sense the king over all the kings of the earth, the sovereign over presidents and prime ministers, the sovereign over congressmen and women and senators and governors. For you have caused the Lord Jesus Christ to sit at your right hand and have assured him and his people that he will reign until it becomes evident that all of his enemies are truly, really, under his feet that you are the mighty one in this world. Even though your name is not popular 
The psalmist says in Psalm 110 that you rule in the midst of your enemies. And that we as your people are to offer ourselves to your service with lives of holiness. And look to you and walk with you. For you have sworn it and will never change your mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is a king and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. No beginning, no end. Prince of righteousness. King of righteousness. And that in the end, all of the political forces in the world that seem so powerful to us, so intimidating, so in control, most of whom ignore you completely, or seek to banish your name from their people on threat of death itself, places like North Korea. You tell us that you will shatter kings one day on the day of your wrath. So as we live in the times we live in, Lord, and may be at times disappointed, anxious, upset, discouraged by the present direction of things. May you remind us that the ultimate direction of things is fixed and sure. And as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of all the kings, lived by your word and drank of your wisdom in this world, we too can follow in his footsteps and partake of your word and drink of your wisdom and rest in you. We ask to help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Remember one of the commentators made the assertion that when you're looking at something like the Gospel of Mark, you need to remind yourself continually that, broadly speaking, Mark answers two questions over and over again. Um, Who is Jesus? And what does it look like to follow him? Who is Jesus? And what does it look like to follow him? And one of the most prominent themes and ways of very clearly, repeatedly thinking about Jesus in Mark's gospel and in the gospels generally is Jesus as teacher. That's how Mark 4 opens. Again, he began to teach the people beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got to go into a boat and sat in the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Again, he began to teach, almost as if Mark is saying, here we go again. Here we go again. 
Jesus is about to do some teaching. Um, That's so much the case that as you march through Mark's gospel, you will find his disciples, people who just met him, summarize his whole person, summarize his entire ministry and life, though he's famous for healing. Keep that in mind. He's famous for healing. Most of them come around him for the healing, as we'll see in a moment. Though he's famous for healing, they still summarize his life and him as the teacher. Mark eight thirty eight, or excuse me, Mark four thirty eight. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion in a boat in a storm, and they woke him up and said to him, "Teacher, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing?" Mark nine seventeen. Someone from the crowd answered and said, "Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has." A spirit that makes him mute. Mark 9.38. John, one of his disciples, said to him, Teacher, we have seen someone casting out demons not in your name and and we've stopped them. Mark 10.20. Teacher. All of these things I have kept from my youth. That's not all of the times that happens, but a whole nother set uses the term rabbi, which is simply the Aramaic word for teacher put into Koine Greek in the New Testament without translating it. So it's just written there in Aramaic, and then it goes this way. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Teacher, rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Mark ten fifty one. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, rabbi. Mark eleven twenty one. Peter remembered and said, rabbi. Look, teacher, 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 teacher. Rabbi, 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 rabbi. Jesus is fundamentally and primarily a teacher. And as John reminded us again this morning, you know, we are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising that the fundamental notion of being a disciple is to be a learner. Since Jesus is ultimately a teacher. So Jesus is... The teacher and those who follow him are are learners, learners. Uh, This is so much the case, and you you, you see the same thing happen right in our immediate context. If we went forward, as maybe a more rational person would have, and, and put these two verses together with the parable... Notice how the parable opens and closes with the idea of Jesus' teacher, disciples as learners. Listen or hear 
Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And we read through the parable, and then in verse 9, the parable closes, and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is a teacher, and if you're going to respond to him wisely, you are going to be one who hears, one who listens. Not only true of Jesus as teacher, God is ultimately presented in the Old Testament as teacher. Most famous little section in all of the book of Deuteronomy, theological center of the Old Testament, is what they call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. Hear, hear. Exactly the same word used to open that next. Hear, O Israel. Hear, Jesus says in the parable. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them. So you'll be like your master. You'll be like the Lord God. And you'll teach your children diligently. So hearing and teaching, hearing and teaching. Jesus is a teacher. And disciples are fundamentally learners. So three things we'll reflect on here. Number one, we're already there. Jesus means to be a teacher. And again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it by the sea, and the whole crowd beside the sea on the land. Now, from the context of Mark 3, we are to remind ourselves most of these people have not come for the lecture. They have not come to hear Jesus teach or preach. That's not what most of them are after. They are there because they've heard stories of physical healing. Remember how it was put back in Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 7 to 10. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, not that he was saying, all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases were coming around him. That's why they're there. And he goes out and, and he teaches them. Now this isn't to criticize them for coming, uh, for healing. Of course they would. So would you. So would anybody. The first century, you have, you have some sort of a chronic illness and you hear of somebody who is eliminating the worst of chronic illnesses instantly, you'd be on the road too. 
you'd be there, you'd be there too. But Mark's gospel assumes, as do the gospels generally, as bad as illness is, it's discouraging, it's intimidating, as crushing as it is, it's not the greatest danger in the world by a ways. Remember how Jesus put it to the guy over in John chapter 5, comes to the pool of Bethesda, and he heals this guy who had been crippled and laying beside the pool for 38 years. 38 years. At Kendra's funeral yesterday, she had had cancer for three years. She was 38 years old. 38 years old. So this guy has been crippled for 38 years. We don't know whether that's his entire life, but he's been a cripple laying by this pool 38 years. Um, And when he's healed, you remember, this is what happens. So, um, John 5, 10 to 13. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful you to take up your bed, But he answered them, the man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that that place. But then in a few verses, Jesus catches up to the guy and, and, and lets him know uh, who he is and who it was that healed him. And they have this exchange, this really interesting little exchange. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, John five fourteen, and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. That's striking, isn't it? Guy's been crippled for 38 years. Sin no more. All right. Lest something worse happens to you than being crippled for 38 years. That's pretty ominous. In this spiritual connection with Jesus, there's something way worse at stake than being crippled 38 years. That's what it says. Last something worse happens to you. Now, commentators divide at this point as to whether or not you're to view this guy's response negatively or positively. And there's like commentator superstars on, on both sides of the, of the question. 
Um, John Calvin himself goes with the positive, um, the positive view of it, uh, and I found myself um, unpersuaded and pretty sure of of the negative view. Uh, namely, uh, what the guy does is, as soon as Jesus leaves, uh, he goes and finds the Pharisees to tell them, yeah, it was Jesus that healed me. In other words, I think you're to read it, he goes to clear his name as being a Sabbath breaker. Um, That that business about you caught me in now, that was Jesus' fault. He's the one healed me, then told me to carry my bed. So let's just clear that up right away. I wasn't really at fault. That's one way uh, they... The commentators take it. I think that's the right way. In other words, I don't think you're supposed to be very impressed with this guy um, uh, from from start to finish. And so I don't think you're supposed to imagine that he took all that seriously, the warning, right? Sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Yeah, 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 very nice. Uh, The first thing I really got to worry about is clearing my name with the Pharisees. So he runs, Jesus is the guy who gave me the really bad Sabbath advice. Jesus is the guy. Now, frankly, that's kind of the majority view of how the average person takes words of warning from the Lord Jesus. I mentioned Calvin a moment ago. One of my favorite little metaphors that Calvin uses in his sermons um, regularly, very regularly, more so in the sermons than, than, than anywhere else in his writings, is he refers to the church, like to your, uh, many of you teach Sunday school, your Sunday school class, a church service, the service we'll have tonight. He refers to that kind of stuff as enrolling in Christ's school. Christ has a school. Uh, And you're enrolling in Christ's school when you come to a worship service. And you're enrolling in Christ's school when you go to a Sunday school class. And you're enrolling in Christ's school when you attend a Bible study. And you're enrolling in Christ's school, really, even when you pick up your Bible each day and read it. Uh, You're going and you're spending a little bit of time in Christ's school. He's the teacher of the school. You ever seriously ask yourself this question? Your view of the world, your general understanding of things, whose school did you learn in? Whose school? Whose school has the controlling interest in your thought life? The controlling shaping of your view of the world. Whose school have you been attending? In the book of Revelation, we're given the, we're given the impression by John that there's really only two schools in the world. Uh, that seems reductionistic to many people, uh, but it is the biblical Outlook on life. Here's how John puts it. You, you, you're either in 
Christ school or you're in the school of the dragon. Revelation 12, 9, And a great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the whole world. Ultimately, in biblical terms, you have Jesus as the teacher. And you have the great serpent as the false teacher. Now, there's all kinds of categories under that false teaching, so that's where the, you know, the reductionism, that's not really a truth. There's, there's just the, the gospel versus everything else. Everything else. That's always been Christian understanding of truth and the understanding of Christianity in the world. Fundamentally, the great dragon, the fearfulness of the dragon as you meet him, in Revelation 12, is his giftedness as a deceiver. As a deceiver. And what John meant is he controls the mainstream outlook of the Roman Empire in the first century, what most people believed in Palestine and anywhere else. And by implication, he controls the mainstream view of things in the 21st century. In Palestine or America or anywhere else. Jesus is a teacher. And the big question is, is he your teacher? And if he isn't, who is? Who is? Who is it that is allowed to shape your view of things, your hope? your understanding, your sense of right and wrong, your sense of what is valuable and not that valuable. Who shapes it? Secondly, Jesus often teaches in parables. Jesus often teaches in parables. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, the idea of parables, are, that's, a, that's a very prominent Old Testament um, idea. Uh, usually, in fact, there's a, a Hebrew word, mashal, and mashal occurs 33 times in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and 28 of those 33 times, it's simply translated over into the Greek New, or, uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, as parable. Parable. Uh, so, uh, a mashal is a parable. But what's really, really helpful here is that one of those uses, one that's very much related to our Sunday school curriculum, because if you remember way back, and we, we used to, when we launched Sunday school, we often reference Psalm 78. Uh, uh, the opening verses of Psalm 78 are sort of the, the theme verses. Of, uh, of what's going on in Sunday school and why Sunday school and why you should participate in Sunday school. And here's how that reads. Psalm 78, 1 to 7. Give ear, O my peoples, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us, we will not hide from them, from their children, 
But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation may know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So there it is. So generation after generation after generation, you pass this teaching down. The people of God are a teaching people. But now back to that little mention of parable in verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable, and then in apposition to that, that is another way of saying the same thing, is this. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Or you could have said that. I will utter riddles from of old. I will utter enigmas from of old. I will utter perplexing sayings from of old. So Jesus was speaking in parables. Why? What's he doing? Why would he use dark sayings? Why would he use enigmas, riddles, perplexing sayings? On this mashal word book of the Old Testament says this about parables these dark sayings. It has a clearly recognizable purpose, that of quickening and apprehension of the real, as distinct for the wished for. Now that's really stunning to a culture like ours. Parables put you in touch with the real. Here's how Americans talk. I like to think the wished for. Parables about the real and we tell ourselves, no, 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 we're little sovereign selves. We decide everything about ourselves. We decide what gender we are. We decide this. We decide that. We decide everything. I like to think the wished for. I like to think. And this text says, parables put you in touch with reality. With reality. The real. And then the parable. Now when I read this, you, you know, we've read the Bible before, most of us in this room. So in two paragraphs, Jesus is about to explain this parable. So you, when you hear it, you sort of automatically plug the explanations in. Um, and so you think you know exactly what he's talking about. But remember, the original audience to this parable never got those explanations. The disciples did later. The original group never got any explanations. Now think about that for a moment, and you'll see this parable is a riddle. It's a dark saying. It's an enigma. 
Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root and it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell in the good soil, and it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And Jesus said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a dark saying. If you're, if you're following along, if you are listening to Jesus, and you know, okay, he thinks he's describing reality. That's the purpose of parables. You tell stories like this. You tell these vague stories to describe reality. Well, reality sounds pretty intimidating. A sower went out to sow, but guess what? It doesn't go very well. As we'll see next week when we come back to this. It doesn't go very well. I mean, you got birds eating it up. Most of the ground is lousy. And so even though things seem to take a start, there seems to be something happening, given a little time, that dies away. Now others seem to make it a little longer. Something in the seed happens, they start coming up, they last more than a day, but they don't last that long. Because weeds choke them out. And then finally there's some survivors. Well, that's pretty ominous. Like, why tell us that story? Well, I'll tell you why you don't tell that story. You don't tell that story as a way of saying to the audience, you got nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be fine. No. You tell that story to say, you got plenty to worry about, and it's not clear exactly what it is. You might meditate on that a little bit. That's a dark saying, that's an enigma. So who is the sower? And what's the seed? And what about the birds? And what about the rocky ground? And what about the hot sun? And what about choking out the seed? What's all that about? And what, what about the 30 and 60 and 100 fold? Well, as they're sitting there, we know from later on, Peter doesn't know. John doesn't know. James doesn't know. None of them know. They don't know. Attorney's out. What's he talking about? Don't know. Don't know. But it doesn't sound good. It's reality. In other words, you hear that parable, and what Jesus just told you is, reality is a dangerous place. Reality is a dangerous place. Most plants don't make it. There it is. He leaves it there. 
He tells stories like that. Now, those are attention-getting stories. Those are attention-getting stories. Thirdly and finally, Jesus speaks to us by means of his teaching. He speaks to us by means of his teaching. Uh, as I said, it's sort of a, you just... And he was speaking to them by means of his teaching. Again, what we like to think, we hear from Jesus mystically, right? Like in the hymn. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. So, there I am, I walk about. And whatever pleasant thought comes into my head, I can attribute to Jesus. And isn't that nice? Or, some are on the other end of it. Whatever terrifying thought that comes into my head, I attribute to Jesus. Uh, Neither thing is really wise. The idea is, no, Jesus speaks to us by means of what he teaches, by means of what he says. And we hear his voice by listening carefully to what he says quoted this over and over again. It was uh, Cornelius Van Til, a philosopher, theologian out of the Dutch heritage. Uh, he published this little book in 1967, so he, had, he, was, uh, he was 72 years old in 1967. Uh, I love this little line. This, this should encourage you. Uh, if, you're, if you're not a daily, systematic Bible reader, this is the kind of thing that's designed to make you, make you one. Ben Till said, It is Christ who speaks to us in Scripture. In it, he tells us who he is and who we are. He tells us he has come to save us from our sins. For that purpose, the Father sent him into the world in order to bring that work to completion to individual men. The Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and gives them unto us. He was speaking to them by means of his teaching and the Holy Spirit takes those things, those words of Christ, that teaching that you find in Scripture, and gives them to us. Paul would say to you as a, as a learner, so be sure of this, Colossians 1.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be taught. Jesus is a teacher. So listen to the teacher and let his words dwell in you richly. Be concerned about understanding them. It is Christ who speaks to us in Scripture. 
It is fundamentally somebody else who gives out the main message at the University of Minnesota. It's fundamentally somebody else who gives out the main message at NPR, PBS, ESPN, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, the television and movie industry. Somebody else says, well, I don't learn from them. I just go there for entertainment. Yes. Yes. That's what you think, but you learn from them. Jesus tells stories. Most people's view of the world has been shaped by the stories they've heard over and over and over again. By the stories they've heard. So who's been teaching who's been teaching you? Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then he says the two really powerful things. Following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. Now, you just, just be honest enough, whether you're politically right or politically left, or wherever you, wherever you are, on, on, on social questions of sexual ethics, no one in 1950 answered most questions the way almost everybody answers them today. How did we get where we are today? How did we get there? The course of this world. Well, it took a while. The 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. First decade, the second decade, and now in the beginning of the third decade of the 21st century, the course of this world rules on. And then he renames it. Following the course of this world. Appositionally, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying about the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of man. Kind. So what if you just flow along with the course of this world? Paul says, well, that'd be children of wrath. Jesus says, by implication from John 5, something worse, something worse than 38 years of being crippled Be careful. Something worse doesn't happen to you. All of that to say, there's a lot at stake in figuring out who your teacher is now and who your teacher's going to be going forward. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice in such a way that we would be shaped by what we hear, that your word, the word of your son, Jesus Christ, would dwell in us richly. So that whatever we do in word or deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of your name. We ask you to help us see this, embody this. We ask in Jesus' name.